Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, December 26th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today we're, um, the journal is doing their newsmakers of the year, and the newsmaker of the year is, um, Mitchell Betzwith from Sioux City. And he uh, won medals at the Special Olympics. And so we'll go on with the story now. Um, there are three major rules that Mitchell Betsworth adheres to when working out in the weight room in the basement of his parents' home. The first rule is to be safe, he, his dad Troy said. The second rule is to have fun. And number three is to do your best. It is obvious Mitchell Betsworth has taken each of these guidelines to heart and even has the hardware to prove it. The 27-year-old from Sioux City won four medals, a gold and three silvers, in power weightlifting at the Special Olympics World Games in Berlin, Germany in June. The East High School graduate received a hero's welcome upon his return from Europe. The city named a street, Betsworth Heights, in his honor. Mayor Bob Scott presented the special blue and white street sign installed at the intersection of 41st Street and Floyd Boulevard to Betzwith and his parents at a city council meeting. The Siouxland Chamber of Commerce feted Mitchell at its annual meeting in September, holding a medal ceremony for him after he did not receive one in Berlin. Standing on the podium, Betzworth flexed his muscles for the over 1,000 dinner guests at the Sioux City Convention Center. The Journal today honors Betzworth as its 2023 Newsmaker of the Year for a stellar performance on an international stage that made his hometown proud. The multiple medals he won in Berlin represent the latest achievements for the young man born with Down syndrome. Selected to compete for Team USA following stellar performances in previous state competitions, he won three gold medals in 2022's U.S. Special Olympics in Orlando, Florida. He also was named the All-Iowa Special Olympics Male Athlete of the Year. In 2019, the Sioux appeared in Sports Illustrated's Year in Picture section. In a photo taken at a Special Olympics competition, he shone straining with all his might, pulling 405 pounds past his thighs. The Berlin Games marked his first foray into international competition. One of nine powerlifters representing America at the Games, he lifted roughly the equivalent of his personal bests in all three events he entered, taking first place in the bench press and second place in the squat, deadlift, and combined lift. His gold medal winning effort in the bench press, uh, 286 pounds, was the best of the Games by over 25 kilograms. He maxed out at... 137.5 kilograms, which is about 303 pounds in the squat, and 170 kilograms, 375 pounds in the deadlift. His mom, Michelle, remains amazed at his accomplishments. When we learned that Mitch had Down syndrome, we were devastated, she recalled. Then, Mitch's own pediatrician told us not to expect much from our son in the years to come. Well, I'd like to see that pediatrician's face now, after seeing all that Mitchell has done, she added. He has far exceeded anyone's expectations. Mitchell Betzwitz's weightlifting started as a hobby back in high school, when a teacher's aide recommended he try the sport. Mitch is an excellent swimmer, as well as an excellent weightlifter, his dad, a former powerlifter himself. He had fun and was excelling at both. 
Bedsworth trains with the Sioux City Knights, an organization that sends 46 athletes, 11 unified partners, 9 coaches, and around 20 chaperones to the Iowa Special Olympics Spring Competition in Ames last May. When Mitch started with the Sioux City Knights, there wasn't really a program for kids when they graduated high school, said Troy, a longtime coach for the organization. It started about 12 years ago with five athletes, and now we're at around 150 athletes and competing in 15 sports year-round. Despite their son's past accomplishments, nothing prepared the family for his entry onto the world stage. Mitchell had already taken us to places we've never dreamed of, Michelle said. Now he was chosen to represent both Iowa and the United States, and we are going to Germany with him. That was just amazing. It helped Mitchell Betsworth had a crew of well-wishers back home in Sioux City. The World Games were televised on both ABC and ESPN, Troy said with a smile. So there were watch parties at Steinbeck's Pub. At the games, I'd be getting text messages from our friends saying they're not seeing Mitchell. I had to remind them of the time difference between Germany and Sioux City. While Michelle said she and Troy were both nervous wrecks during the World Games, their son was clearly in the zone. Mitchell had a job to do, and he did it well, his mom said. When asked about his personal experience at the Special Olympic World Games, Mitchell's first memory was of food. They had good tacos in Germany, he said. They had good tacos, good burgers, and good pudding. And you, and Troy said, you can tell Mitch is serious about powerlifting. It takes a lot of energy, and Mitch loves to eat. Mitchell also loved his friends on Team USA. That's the great thing about Special Olympics, Troy said. The athletes may be competing against each other, but they're still celebrating everybody's successes. No doubt, Mitchell is used to teamwork. He has been working at Pizza Ranch for the past eight years, which is an accomplishment he is happy to share. Mitchell may not remember the number of medals he's won, but he'll always remember how long he's been at Pizza Ranch, Michelle said with a chuckle. It's important, Mitchell said, chiding his mom with a good-natured shrug. Troy Betsworth said his son has had an incredible 2023, yet he doesn't think in those terms. Despite being a world champion, he continues to work out every day simply because he likes what he's doing. His workout includes weight training up to four to five days a week. Who knows, Mitchell may have another standout year. Well, the 2026 Special Olympics USA Games will be taking place in Minneapolis, Troy said in a hopeful manner, and it's always good to look ahead. And there were three uh, runners-up for the um, Newsmaker of the Year. And the first runner-up uh, was Kim and Jeremy Taylor. A federal jury in November convicted Kim Taylor of 52 counts of voter fraud tied to her husband Jeremy's unsuccessful run for the Republican nomination for a U.S. House seat in the 2020 primary and election to the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors that fall. During the six-day trial in Sioux City, government prosecutors said Kim Taylor orchestrated a scheme to stuff the ballot box for her husband. A Vietnam native, she approached numerous Vietnamese voters with limited English comprehension and filled out and signed election forms and ballots on behalf of them and their English-speaking children. Jeremy Taylor, named by prosecutors as an unindicted co-conspirator in his wife's trial, resisted numerous calls after her conviction to resign from the Board of Supervisors. Taylor said he plans to serve out his term, which expires on January 1, 2025. Board Chair Matthew Ung argued his fellow Republican is creating an unnecessary distraction for the board and is doing the public a disservice by not stepping down. The next runner-up was Paul Gausman. 
The former Sioux City Public Schools superintendent continued to make waves months after he left to accept a similar job in Lincoln, Nebraska. In January, Gosman sued his former employer, alleging the district and four of the seven school board members violated Iowa's open meeting laws. He asked a judge to remove from office the four board members, Dan Greenwell, Jan George, Taylor Goodvin, and Bob Mickelson. The four had earlier voted to file an ethics complaint with the state board, accusing Gosman of bribing two newly elected board members in November 2021 to back his pick for board president. In August, the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners found the allegations credible enough to refer them to an administrative judge for a hearing. A trial over Gosman's lawsuit is set for January 16th. His suit alleges that the school board violated state law by holding closed meetings on January 24, 2022, March 28, 2022, and November 30, 2022, to discuss him and his professional qualifications. In a court filing in September, Gosman admitted he not only knew about the January 24th meeting and its purpose, but also requested it. And our uh, next runner-up is Bob Scott. In an apparent testament to his enduring popularity, popularity. Scott ran unopposed for his fourth term as a directly elected mayor. Already the longest serving mayor in Sioux City history, Scott will have served a total of 28 years on the city council and a combined 23 years as mayor by the time his new four-year term expires in 2028. The local businessman has served four stretches as mayor. He was first elected to the council in 1985, back when the council picked the mayor from among its five members. Between 1990 and 1998, he served as mayor for seven of those eight years. After a 14-year absence from the council, voters elected Scott as mayor in 2011, as he won a nail-biter over then-councilman Tom Paget. Scott ran unopposed for re-election in 2015 and won a third term overwhelmingly in 2019. Six months before this year's general election, Scott escaped injury in a three-vehicle accident on the city's west side. The crash caused the pickup he was driving to roll onto its side. Police cited Scott for failure to obey a stop sign and yield right of way. And then there were two others who did receive consideration for Newsmaker of the Year. The first one was Trayla Lee, the top vote-getter in November Sioux City School Board election. Lee is the daughter of the late Flora Lee, the first black woman elected in Woodbury County. And the other one was Julie Shaner, who narrowly won her second term on the Sioux City Council. The businesswoman defeated retiring building inspector Tom Murphy by 113 votes. We'll now move to um, the top 10 Iowa news stories for 2023. As 2023 draws to a close, the Courier looks back, or the Journal looks back at some of the biggest and most controversial news stories of 2023. After a contentious legislative session and on the eve of the 2024 Iowa caucuses, it's no surprise politics dominates this year's list. The choices are presented in chronological order with no, um, not rating them by importance. So the first story. 
In January, surrounded by school choice advocates and private school students, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a huge private school assistance bill, the culmination of a three-year effort and a victory on one of the governor's top legislative priorities. The program will provide $7,600 education savings accounts for tuition and expenses at private schools. Eventually open to all students regardless of income, it will cost an estimated $345 million annually by 2027. Supporters say the law provides choice for parents to send children to private school who can't afford it. Opponents say it will siphon money from public schools and fund unaccountable private schools that can turn away students with disabilities or who don't share their values. The second uh, top story. In March, Republican state lawmakers passed a slate of anti-LGBTQ bills, including a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Lawmakers also passed a law requiring students, employees, parents, and visitors to use restrooms, changing rooms, and other related facilities according to their biological sex as listed on a person's official birth certificate. Thousands of Iowans publicly protested. Students at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes, and hundreds attended rallies at the Iowa Capitol. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, LGBTQ organizers, and students said the bills contradict notions of freedom and liberty. Republicans described the ban on gender-affirming care as necessary to protect children from medical care when the science is not settled, and the bathroom bill as a common-sense way to ensure the privacy and safety of students. The third story. In May, Reynolds signed a slate of education bills into law, including a bill limiting LGBTQ instruction in topics through sixth grade and barring books with sexual content from school libraries. The law bars discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through sixth, bans books depicting sex acts from school libraries, and requires schools to notify parents if a student requests a change in their name or pronouns. Supporters said it expands parents' rights and gives them more input over their children's education. It was opposed by LGBTQ rights organizations, which said it would put transgender youths in danger. And then number four. On May 28th, structural issues led to the partial collapse of an apartment building in Davenport, killing three people. At the time of the collapse, there were 53 residents registered living in the 80-unit building. Search and rescue efforts continued for nearly a week at the six-story apartment building constructed in 2015 and 16. It was eventually demolished, but left behind a slew of lawsuits, most still unresolved. And number five. In July, Reynolds signed into law a near-total ban on abortions in Iowa, passed three days earlier by a special session of the Iowa legislature. Days later, a Polk County District Court judge temporarily blocked enforcement of the new law. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, in November, filed the state's legal argument to the Iowa Supreme Court, seeking to uphold a law that would ban most abortions after six weeks. Justices planned to hear the appeal. And then number six, in October, Navigator CO2, one of three carbon dioxide pipeline companies seeking to build in Iowa, announced it was canceling its proposal because of unpredictable regulatory environment in Iowa and South Dakota. The pipeline projects are meant to capture lucrative federal tax credits for sequestering carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that is primary driver of climate change. Ethanol plants would benefit from the tax credits and from producing low-carbon fuels that could be sold in stricter markets. But activists cite safety risks while 
questioning the alleged environmental benefits of the projects, and landowners have balked at the proposed use of eminent domain to acquire an easement for the projects. The pipeline proposals remain by Summit Carbon Solutions and Wolf Carbon Solutions. Wolf has said it will not use eminent domain for its short route in Iowa. In November, candidates who supported restrictions on school materials and classroom discussions about gender and transgender students were roundly defeated in school board elections across Iowa. School board elections in the Mason City, Linmar, Ankeny, and Johnston School Districts, just to name a few, went almost exclusively for candidates who were supported by the teachers' union and who opposed book policing and transgender student policies. Almost exclusively, candidates who were endorsed by conservative groups, including the self-described parents' rights advocacy group Moms for Liberty, failed. In 2021, school board elections in Iowa and across the country swung toward candidates who opposed pandemic-era restrictions on schools, including closures and mask mandates. In 2023, the pendulum swung the opposite direction. Number eight. In Reynolds, in November, Reynolds officially endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his quest for Republican presidential nomination, calling him one of the most effective leaders I have ever seen. Reynolds originally said she would remain neutral in the run-up to the caucuses, but over the summer began to suggest she might endorse after all. Typically, Iowa governors have remained neutral. Donald Trump criticized Reynolds as disloyal. He called the decision the end of her political career. This month, Trump's campaign released an ad including comments from Reynolds praising the former president. She argued the ad was misleading since she has endorsed DeSantis. And the number nine, throughout 2023, former President Donald Trump dominated the contest for Iowa's delegates to the 2024 Republican National Convention. Trump currently leads his Republican rivals by more than 30 percentage points, according to a real clear politics average of Iowa polls. Many political experts predicted the anti-Trump GOP vote would consolidate as the Iowa caucuses draw nearer. Instead, Trump's advantage has grown. Trump had the support of 51% of likely Iowa Republican caucus attendees in a survey released this month conducted by J. Ann Selzer for the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom. Trump's standing grew by 8 percentage points from a similar poll in October. While Trump rivals like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley devoted huge amounts of time and money to Iowa, Trump has visited the state much less, although he stopped here four times in the last month. And then the last story, the number 10, was in December, a satanic temple display inside the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines was destroyed, and a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot who was recently defeated in a statehouse election in Mississippi was accused of causing the damage. A Facebook posting by the satanic temple said the display, known as a Baphomet statue, was destroyed beyond repair. The display is permitted by rules that govern religious installations inside the Capitol, but drew criticisms criticism from many conservatives, including presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. But others, including State Representative John Dunwell, Republican from Newton, who also is a minister, warned against allowing vocal critics to silence a minority for thinking or believing differently than the majority. Writing on Facebook, Dunwell said, I don't want the state evaluating and making determinations about religions. Shocked so many want to give up their freedom so they don't have to see a dis- display they disagree with. Now I have a story from uh, Nebraska and uh, the headline is Groups Gift Car to 19-Year-Old Who Recently Became Caregiver for Her Siblings. 
and this is from the Lincoln Journal Star. When Kendall Warnock heard the story of a 19-year-old college student and mother who unexpectedly became the primary caregiver for her four younger siblings, he knew he wanted to do something to help. The family from Myanmar arrived as refugees to the United States in 2010. When the 19-year-old's mother died in October, she became the primary caregiver for her younger siblings ages 4 to 16. She's currently facing ongoing legal expenses as she works to obtain guardianship of her siblings. Those expenses meant she could not afford a larger car to accommodate all the kids, leading her to often have to take two trips to transport everyone. A Cedar Youth Services employee helping the 19-year-old reached out to Catholic Services of Southern Nebraska to see about securing a donated vehicle for the family. CSS, a, a licensed car dealership, and often receives vehicles for people in need, but they didn't have one large enough at the time for the of the request. John Sukup, CSS development officer, brought up the family situation at a weekly Business Boosters chapter of Business Networking International, or BNI, meeting. The story immediately caught the attention of Warnock, who owns A1 Automotive Repair Shop in Lincoln. After hearing the story, Warnock said he went home, talked to his wife, and prayed about the situation. We just talked about the responsibilities that you'd have with four siblings, and you're in college, Warnock said. You start thinking, we don't have challenges. That is a challenge. The next day, Warnock woke up and knew he needed to find them a car. Working with other BNI members, Warnock bought and repaired a 2007 Chevy Uplander. Todd Spidel, BNI chapter president and owner of Spidel Body Works, volunteered to cover the cost of a new windshield for the van. Another BNI member, contacted a local foundation when it is able to secure an additional $1,500 to give to the family and to help with the cost of van repairs. Warnock said he wanted to work quickly to get the family to the car to the family before Christmas. This situation is a lot, especially around the holiday season, Warnock said. We just put our foot on the gas, literally. On Thursday afternoon, Warnock and Sukup gave the keys to the 19-year-old who did not want to be identified in the CSS parking lot. Sukup made sure the woman and her sister who joined her to pick up the car knew they had a community of people in Lincoln who were there to help them. Our motto is hope in the good life, Sukup said while handing over the keys. There's a lot going on in your life right now and we wanted to give you some hope. Our next story headline is Iowa rejects millions in summer food aid for kids. Iowa will turn down federal funding to pay for summer food aid to children, opting instead for a state-funded program officials say will provide better nutrition and avoid spending $2.2 million a year on administration. Family advocates decried the decision announced Friday and questioned the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services estimate of costs for running the three-month program. It is a huge loss for Iowa, said State Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, Des Moines, uh, Democrat from West Des Moines. If we are talking 20-some million dollars coming from the federal government, I don't think the state is going to be matching that. They are just going to be leaving it to the charities to make up the difference. Summer EBT started during the COVID-19 pandemic and slated to become permanent in 2024, provides low-income children with $40 per month in benefits during the three months of the summer. The U.S. Department of Agriculture covers the costs of the benefits, but states must pay for half of the administrative costs. States have until January 1st to notify the USDA if they want to provide summer EBT next summer. 
Iowa announced its decision to bypass federal funding on Friday. Federal COVID-era cash benefit programs are not sustainable and do not provide long-term solutions for the issues impacting children and families, Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement. An EBT card does nothing to promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an epidemic. Instead, she said, Iowa will continue to support Iowa children eligible for food assistance year-round by enhancing and expanding already existing child nutrition programs. She also said, HHS and the Department of Education have well-established programs in place that leverage partnerships with community-based providers and schools to understand the needs of the families they serve. If the Biden administration and Congress want to make real commitments to family well-being, they should invest in already existing programs and infrastructure at the state level and give us the flexibility to tailor them to our state's needs. Trone Garriott said she did not know how Health and Human Services determined the state's share of administrative costs for the summer EBT program would be $2.2 million. It costs our state's $2.2 million in shared administrative costs to run the entire SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, for the whole state, she said. Trone Garriott is a Lutheran pastor and coordinator of interfaith engagement for the Des Moines Area Religious Council Food Pantry Network, which provided 26,469 unique individuals a three-day supply of food in November, she said. The Iowa Senator said she recently visited a food bank in Humboldt in northwest Iowa that was running out of food. We are in a food insecurity crisis in Iowa, she said. Of the 132,000 Iowa households currently enrolled in SNAP, 41.5% have children in the home, the Iowa Human Service Agency reported. SNAP enrollment has declined down from over 150,000 households in 2020 to 132,000 households for 2024. Last summer, more than 1.6 million meals and snacks were served to children 18 and younger throughout Iowa as part of the Summer Food Service Program and the Seamless Summer Option Program. Funded through the USDA and administered by the Iowa Department of Education, each of the 500-plus meal sites in low-income areas across Iowa are run by local sponsors to ensure children can get nutritious meals during the summer at no cost in a safe and supervised environment, the Iowa agency reported. And moving on, ruling to come on teaching of gender, gender identity in schools. A federal judge said he will rule by January 1st whether to halt implementation and enforcement of Iowa's new state law that prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade and requires the removal of any school materials that depict sex acts. Judge Stephen H. Loker of the U.S. District Court in Iowa's Southern District gave himself the New Year's deadline by, for his ruling after a hearing Friday at the U.S. District Courthouse. During the roughly three-hour hearing, Loker said arguments from attorney, Loker heard arguments from attorneys in two separate lawsuits that are challenging the new state law. From the plaintiffs, the ACLU of Iowa and Rand Peng, Penguin Random House Publishing and from the state of Iowa. The ACLU of Iowa and Penguin Random House are arguing the new state law is unconstitutional because it violates the free speech of their plaintiffs, which include LGBTQ students, the LGBTQ advocacy organization Iowa Safe Schools, the Iowa State Education Association Teachers Union, and the publishing company. They have asked the court to enjoin the new law, which would stop its implementation. The law, Senate File 496, passed the Iowa legislature with only Republican support and was signed into law by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. It has resulted in removal of books from school libraries.
Thomas Story, an attorney for the ACLU of Iowa, argued Friday that the state law represents the state exercising control over matters of opinion and thought. He said LGBTQ students are self-silencing for fears of the new law, which includes punishments for teachers and other educators who violate the law. Under the law, the first violation calls for a warning and subsequent violations could put the educator before the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners which handles education licensing and which could consider disciplinary action. They know they cannot go to their teacher, Story argued, adding that the new law has chilled students' free speech. Story also argued that whenever advocates for the law cite examples of graphic content they believe should be banned from the schools, they only use examples that depict sexual acts between LGBTQ characters or individuals and never depictions of heterosexual sex acts. Story also argued the law is too vague, which has created confusion among school leaders about what content is allowed in school curriculum and libraries and what is prohibited. Supporters of the law have pushed back on that argument since it was being moved through the legislative process. Daniel Johnston, an assistant attorney general arguing on behalf of the state, continued that defense during uh, Friday's hearing. He said some school districts may be misinterpreting the law by applying it too broadly. The law keeps graphic depictions out of schools, Johnston said. Friday's hearing and and accompanying legal filings revealed the state's position that the section of the law that prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade does not apply to library materials, only classroom curriculum. It would have been nice if the state would tell everybody that a long time ago, a story said to reporters after the hearing. Johnston also conceded to Loker, the judge, that a teacher who reads to students a book that includes gay characters would be in violation of the law because that would be considered classroom curriculum. Loker at times appeared sympathetic to educators who say the new law is too vague and unclear and who fault the state for not providing specific guidance to help schools comply with the law. Loker also pushed back at story, challenging the argument that the law discriminates against LGBTQ students. It's one of the most bizarre laws I've ever read in my life, Loker said, but it is content neutral. Attorney Fred Sperling, arguing on behalf of Penguin Random House, called the law an unprecedented assault on school libraries. He argued to the court that the law was written too broadly, and as evidence, noted that the law would ban from schools any book that contains a description of the law, since the law defines and thus describes sex acts. Sperling is from the national law firm Arendt Fox Schiff. Among his clients is professional basketball great Michael Jordan. Most of the new Iowa law went into effect this summer, but the punishments for educators who violate the law are set to go into effect January 1st. Loker said he will provide his ruling on or before that date. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, December 26th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now go to the obituaries. Kathy M. Armbright, 69, of Sioux City, passed away on Tuesday, December 19th. Arrangements are pending through Nelson Berger Northside Chapel. Marlene Eichholt, 84, of Greeley, Colorado, formerly of Correctionville, Iowa, died December 5th. Um, funeral services will be 11 a.m. December 30th. Visitation will be from 10 to 11 a.m. at St. Joseph's Catholic Church of at Anthon, Iowa. Interment will be at the uh, St. Joseph Cemetery in Anthon. Armstrong Van Houten Funeral Home of Anthem is in charge of arrangements. 
Janet I. Wagner, 68, of Sioux City, passed away on December 11th. A memorial service will be held 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 3rd at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Burial will be at the Logan Cemetery. Ralph Loringer, Jr., son of the late Ralph and May Loringer, was born on February 18, 1930, in Sioux City. With a heavy heart, we announce his passing on December 17th. He met the love of his life, Janet, while attending Sioux City East High School, and these high school sweethearts celebrated 70 wonderful years of marriage in August of 2020. They, along with their two sons, Doug and Brad, lived in Sioux City. At the age of 18, Ralph enlisted with the United States Naval Reserve, where he proudly served his country. He worked two jobs during the child as a child work growing growing years, including night shifts at the post office, and yet still found the time to be an active part of the boys' activities. One of his fondest memories was the time he spent coaching their Little League baseball team. Ralph worked as a superintendent for the U.S. Postal Service in Sioux City until he retired at age 62. This early retirement allowed Ralph and Janet the opportunity to spend more quality time and create a lifetime of memories with their children's families. In 1992, they packed up their belongings and moved west from their beautiful home in Sargent Bluff to be near Brad and, their, and Holly and their children in Greeley, Colorado. A few, few years later, they moved to Kentucky to be near Doug and his children. Ralph and Jan's life mission was to be the best possible grandparents on earth, and for those efforts, the family is eternally grateful. Ralph had a kind heart, a great ear for listening, and was always available for sharing some sound advice. He enjoyed watching and attending sports events, playing cribbage, and shopping for all the grandkids. He never missed a school program, sporting event, birthday celebration, or any other opportunity where he could proudly show his love and support for the grandkids. In lieu of flowers, please send donations to the American Cancer Society. And now, um, Don Sue Martin from Sioux City. A funeral service will be held 2 p.m. Wednesday, December 27th at the Waterbury Funeral Home. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, December 26th. Burial will be at the Memorial Park Cemetery. Don S. Martin was born to Donald and Ramona Dixon on February 5, 1954, in Sioux City. Don was one of seven children, and all of the kids' names started with D. They referred to themselves as the Seven Ds. They were extremely close growing up. Family was everything to Don. Don spent most of her childhood life in Sioux City, except when the family moved to Watertown, South Dakota, for a brief time. Dawn graduated from East High School in 1972. After graduating, she began working at Sneaky's Chicken in Sioux City, where she met the love of her life, Daniel J. Martin. On June 23, 1978, Dawn married Daniel at Latham Park in Sioux City. The two enjoyed camping, boating, and riding motorcycles. The two were in a motorcycle club and went riding with friends and club members any chance they could get. Dawn and Dan rode their bikes from coast to coast one summer, and Dawn even won a female hill climb at Sturgis in the late 70s. She was a tough little lady. In 1983, Dawn and Dan welcomed their first and only child, Lindsay. Dawn enjoyed being a mother and lived her whole life to make Dan and Lindsay happy. Their happiness was her happiness. In 1984, Dawn started working a lifelong career at FedEx as a courier. Dawn enjoyed employment at FedEx and remained lifelong friendships 
that started at FedEx. She also worked at Bacon Creek General Store for many years. In 1988, Don and Dan purchased their forever home and the family moved to Ponca, Nebraska. The family was surrounded by great neighbors that also became lifelong friends. Don loved God and loved reading the Bible. Her faith was very strong, even through to the very end. She also loved being her grandma to Espen and Ryland. They truly were her whole life. Nothing brought a bigger smile to her face or more joy to her heart than those two. After retirement, Dawn spent her off days working at her niece's salon and helping stock shelves at the Trading Post grocery store. Dawn was very social and was so proud of her niece and loved working at the salon. Dawn also became very good friends with the store owner and would often visit the store just to chat with her friend Vicky. Dawn was not only a hard worker, but also took on a caregiver role to her husband, Dan, after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She was a devoted wife and understood what the terms, for better or for worse, and unconditional love meant. She cared for Dan for many years at home until his passing. In early October, Dawn underwent an extensive heart surgery, followed by several months of complications that resulted from the surgery. She was a fighter until the very end. Even though in pain and having difficulty breathing, she remained gracious to the hospital staff and loved telling them her daughter is a nurse. She was so proud of her daughter, Lindsay. On December 18th, while still hospitalized, Dawn's pain and suffering came to an end. She passed into heaven with her family surrounding her with love, prayer, and comfort. Dawn was the most selfless, giving, compassionate, hardworking woman that lived, and she will be greatly missed by all who knew her. And that is it for the obituaries. We'll now move to the sports section, and our story is Helan Retires, Cropley's Number 2. As a student at Bishop Helan High School, Tyler Cropley recalled reading the baseball record books, dreaming of his name in there someday. The next time Cropley visits his alma mater, the Kansas City Royals catcher will see his name and number hanging up on the outfield wall. The Crusaders retired number two jersey at halftime at the boys' basketball game against Sergeant Bluff Luton in the O'Gorman Gym Fieldhouse on December 12th. It was so cool to take this whole night in, Cropley said. That's a cool thing for me and my family. Cropley found out his number was being retired by complete surprise. The 2014 Helan grad was at the football state championship game with his family when baseball coach Andy Osborne told him and his family that this was happening. It didn't really hit me until I was driving home that night, he said. I was so focused on the football game, I got to thinking about it and picked a date. Cropley remains deeply connected to his beginnings, appreciating the academic, faith, and athletic foundation he received from Bishop Healing. While with the Crusaders, he hit 466 with four homers and 37 RBIs in his 2014 senior season. He had an outstanding pitch and, pitching season, too, earning four wins and having an ERA of 89. The Crusaders went 31-8 in 2014. He drove in 142 total runs for the Crusaders, including a career-high 43 in 2012. His 142 RBIs is tied for the most in program history in a career. Cropley also co-owns a single-season doubles record of 20 with Ian Gill. Cropley became the third Crusader to have his number retired. Don Wingert was the first in 2020, and then Joe Bisanus earned that honor the following summer. Cropley also joined the two to play at the major league level. In September, the former Iowa Hawkeye was called up and started a game against Cleveland. During that game, Cropley drove in the game-winning run and earned his first major, major league hit. 
I know some guys get up there and get one game and never end up getting that hit, Cropley said. I was glad I was able to get two big ones out of the way right there in that first game. Now that first RBI and first hit and seeing them all come back into the dugout having a pitch runner for me, I was able to soak it all in. His first hit came after spending most of the summer at AA Northwest Arkansas. He was called up in early September for a brief stint, then recalled back to Kansas City later that month due to an injury by Salvador Perez. I was just really happy for myself knowing all the hard work is finally paying off and getting the hit, Cropley added. It's a big deal when the opportunity comes up to get into the big league game. Cropley has started his off-season workout routine to get ready for 2024. He works out at Dugout Sports in Fairfax, Iowa, a suburb of Cedar Rapids. He isn't sure where he'll start the season, but he wants to make sure he's ready for whatever his opening day assignment will be. I've been doing a lot of hitting because that's obviously what will keep you up the big leagues, Cropley said. I'll be back getting into the catching side of things, but I want to make sure the hitting goes a long way. And our next story is about NAIA Volleyball. Jaslyn DeHaan, who led Northwestern College to the school's first national championship volleyball game, has been named a first-team NAIA All-American. Two of DeHaan's teammates also earned All-American honors. Allison Dexter was named to the second team, while Olivia was an honorable mention. An outside hitter, DeHaan posted a 469 kills set mark, 521 kills, and 249 hitting percentage this season, vaulting the Red Raiders to the number one ranking and the title game against Indiana Westland, which they lost in a five-set thriller. The junior from Orange City had a team-high 19 double-doubles this season, including having one in each game at the national tourney. She twice hit a career-high mark with 27 kills. Defensively, she had five games this season where she recorded at least 20 digs in a match. She was also one of six Red Raiders to have double-digit service aces this year with 10. DeHaan earned first-team All-American honors for the first time after receiving honorable mention in her first season at Northwestern last year. She also was named the 2023 GPAC Player of the Year and AVCA West Central Region Player of the Year. DeHaan and Dexter provided a potent 1-2 punch for the Red Raiders offense this season. Dexter scored 383 kills, or 3.3 per set, with a 214 hitting percentage. The junior from Urbandale also posted a GPAC leading 58 aces. After earning third team All-American honors last season, Dexter moved up to the second team this year. She ha has been named to the AVCA West Region All-Region team in back-to-back -back seasons and has garnered first-team all-conference honors in all three of her seasons as a Red Raider, including being named the 2021 GPAC's Freshman of the Year. Grandstra was the backbone of the Red Raider back row this season with her libero position. The junior from Sheldon led the team with 664 total digs, ranking second in the GPAC with 5.68 digs per set and setting a new career best in a season. Five times a season, she recorded 30-plus digs. This season marks the second straight season that head coach Kyle Vandebosch has coached a first-team All-American while at Northwestern. He has now coached 16 first-team All-American selections since taking over the Red Raider program in 2005. And now we move to NAIA football um, players of the year. Jalen Gramstead, who led Northwestern to a second straight championship game has been selected as the NAIA Football National Player of the Year. 
Gramstead, a junior quarterback from Leicester, Iowa, averaged 242.4 yards passing per game and 9.8 yards per attempt as the Red Raiders finished the regular season 11-0 with a number one ranking. Northwestern, which won last year's championship grade game as Gramstead earned MVP honors, lost to Kaiser, Florida in a rematch in Monday's title game 35-25. He placed first in completion percentage, third in yards, and fourth in touchdowns and completions. The elusive dual-threat signal caller put together a show in a trio of games in which he threw for over 300 yards of passing and five games where he ran for over 100 yards. The Offensive Player of the Year in the Great Plains Conference, or GPAC, Gramstead also was selected as NAIA AFCA Coach's First Team All-American. Joining Gramstead on the NAIA, a AFCA first team were Dort defensive lineman Parker Beck, Morningside defensive back Lonel Boyd Jr. Boyd, a junior from St. Louis, earned GPAC Defensive Player of the Year honors after finishing the regular season with 72 tackles, three interceptions, and a sack. The Mustangs tied for second place. Boyd in the GPAC with Dort and played the second round of the NAIA playoffs. Beck anchored a Dort defensive line that paved the way for a defender rushing attack that 249 yards per game, the third best in the NAIA. Dort averaged 31.5 points per game as the defenders. Beck finished 9-3 and reached the second round of the NAIA playoffs. Three of Gramstad's teammates also were named NAIA AFC All-Americans. Senior running back Connor McQuillan of Leavenworth, Kansas, and senior defensive back Cody Moser of Rock Valley were picked for the second team, while senior receiver Michael Story of Spencer was a third-team selection. Briarcliff long snapper M.J. Montgomery, a senior from Norfolk, Nebraska, was also a second-team pick. Two Morningside players, senior offensive tackle Riley Lindbergh and junior linebacker Isaac Pingle, and two Dort defensive players, senior tackle Jessup Leak and senior defensive back Abraham Stoles, were also named to the third team. Gramstead is the fourth consecutive GPAC player and fifth in the last six years to win NAIA Player of the Year honors. Morningside quarterback Joe Dolinchak won the award in 2021 and 2022. Northwestern quarterback Tyson Kuma was picked in 2020, and Morningside quarterback Trent Solzma was the selection in 2018. We'll now move to an um, article about um, health warning signs. We rarely think life-threatening because conditions such as a heart attack can happen to us, and we tend to miss signs that such conditions are brewing. You think, I'm too young or I'm too healthy for it to be true, and you ignore the symptoms. Protect yourself by learning the warning signs of the following conditions and taking actions if you recognize them. Number one is a heart attack. A heart attack occurs when something blocks blood flow to the to a part of the heart muscle. It can be fatal. The typical Typical symptom is extreme pain or pressure in the middle of the chest. Chest pain that comes and goes, especially with exertion, is one early warning sign. But other symptoms can also be warning signs, such as uh, shortness of breath, fatigue, nausea or vomiting, or sudden pain in the abdomen, back, jaw, or shoulder, even without the chest pain. Women are more likely to have these other symptoms in addition to chest pain, but men can also have them. How can you tell if it's a heart attack and not something else? Ask yourself two questions. Is the symptom new and is it recurring or not going away? 
For example, if you could walk up a flight of stairs yesterday without any issues, and now the same level of activity is very hard for you, then something is wrong. Or if you experience a pain in your abdomen, back, jaw, or shoulder when you exert yourself, especially if it recurs and isn't going away, contact your doctor promptly. And then atrial fibri fibrillation, or AFib, is a name for rapid abnormal contractions of the heart's upper chambers. Instead of squeezing in concert, the atria quivers, which can make the blood inside pool and form clots. The clots can then travel to the brain, heart, or other parts of the body and cause life-threatening damage. Many people with AFib do not have any symptoms, but you might detect AFib if you experience palpitations, a feeling that your heart is beating unusually rapidly or irregularly, even when you're resting. You might also feel faint or experience sudden fatigue, and some people recognize it by wearing smartwatches that track heart rhythms. The technology isn't perfect, but it is pretty good at recognizing AFib. If you suspect you're having AFib symptoms, write down how often they occur and when and see your doctor as soon as possible. And stroke. A stroke occurs when blood flow to the brain is blocked or a blood vessel in the brain bursts. It can be fatal. A major stroke can cause sudden difficulty speaking or understanding, numbness or weakness on one side of the body, blurry vision, dizziness, or a severe headache. Any one of those warns an immediate call to 911. In some cases, the first warning of an impending major stroke might be a mini-stroke or transient in isemic attack or TIA. It has the same symptoms as a major stroke, but they last briefly and are easy to brush off. For example, you might lose vision in one eye for a minute and maybe think it's because you were looking at your smartphone too long. But a TIA is often the harbinger of a bigger stroke. The symptom might go away, but the next episode could cause permanent damage. If a stroke symptom of any kind occurs suddenly, even if it goes away, call your doctor's office immediately. And then pulmonary embolism, which is uh, occurs when a blood clot forms in a leg, then travels upward and lodges in the lung. A clot can reduce your blood your body supply of oxygen-rich blood and damage the lung. Sometimes it's fatal. It can cause blood to back up in the heart and even cause your heart to stop. The major symptoms of a pulmonary embolism, extreme fatigue and shortness of breath, chest pain, or passing out will probably get your attention, but you might not connect to other symptoms. For example, it can cause flu-like symptoms such as a cough, fever, dizziness, wheezing, or heart palpitations. If you have blood clots in the deep leg veins called deep vein thrombosis or DVT, you might have pain, swelling, or redness in one leg. If you're not sure if you have symptoms, think of your risk factors. Have you been sitting for long periods? Are you on a medication that can cause clotting? Do you have a family history of DVT? All of these can cause blood clots in the legs. If you have both suspicious symptoms and these risk factors, call your doctor promptly. We'll now move to Dear Abby. In our first letter, I have two sons in their 50s. My older son is kind, attentive, and loving. The younger one, Scott, is problematic. 
Both my boys were raised the same, although when they were in their early teens, I divorced their alcoholic father. At that point, I had to work three jobs to keep them fed and sheltered. Scott constantly returns to the past and accuses me of never having time for him. He no longer speaks to me, which happens often and can last for long periods. His wrath is directed solely at me, and he accuses me of turning the rest of the family against him. He is negative and controlling, and the truth is, no one wants to be around him. In addition to posting hurtful things on social media, he now refers to me as the Ice Maiden. A close family member advised me to look up the definition of narcissism, and I was shocked to see the description of this disorder fits Scott perfectly. What I have read and researched about narcissism stay, says stay away and only counseling will help. He refuses, saying it would be too hurtful. Have I lost a son? Is this something I created? Signed, Mom of a Monster. And the reply, please stop blaming yourself. If you have researched narcissism, you should already know that you did not cause Scott's problem. Whether the estrangement is permanent, only time will tell. In the meantime, protect yourself by no longer trying to engage with him and block his hurtful social media posts. You can't fix what's wrong with your son and he won't try to fix himself because he's enjoying being the injured party. And the next letter. I have recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. Due to my DNA results, I will have a double mastectomy sometime in the next few months after I finish chemo. I want to celebrate that it was caught early by throwing a ta-ta to the ta-ta's party, complete with crazy wigs, a boob cake, and a round of slippery nipple cocktails a week or so before my surgery. One of my friends thinks this idea is tacky and she's firmly against it. Abby, she can't even say the word cancer aloud. She has to whisper it. Am I wrong? Is it tacky to want to affirm life and flout both fear and death with the over-the-top tacky humor? This kind of humor is how I deal with serious problems. If I can mock the problem, I lessen its power. For me, it's like celebrating Dia de los Moltres, which is the Day of the Dead. But in this case, it's my breasts that I'm losing, not my life. What do you think? Signed, Party Mood in Montana. And Abby replies, I think you are a brave and strong woman, clearly much more so than your friend. You are dealing with a serious challenge in the healthiest way possible by facing it head on. You deserve to be supported by your friends in the months to come. But the woman you have written about is not one of them. She is not emotionally strong enough to accompany you on this journey. Do not blame her, but do disinvite her. And that concludes uh, that letter. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, December 26th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org at any time. And thank you for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.